0: hello greetings thanks for your interest in spiritual matters my name Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ we're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 as he concludes his sermon Peter declares that God has made both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified in Acts chapter 10 and in verse 36 while preaching to Cornelius Peter declares that the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. In 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and in verse 3, the Apostle Paul declares that he wanted them to understand that no one is speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It's one of those gimme questions if you're a Christian Do you believe Jesus is Lord in Christ? you a christian of course you do that's what it means to be a christian right and most in the world of christendom and even uh many who we might call the barely churched even some among the unchurched may also agree that jesus is lord and jesus is the christ but what happens when we say okay what do you mean by that what does it mean that jesus is lord or jesus is christ a lot of times, if you ask that question, people will get right to the issues around Jesus' divinity, and they say, well, Jesus is Lord, that means he's God. Others might consider it in terms of belief, the idea that you give mental assent to of the proposition that Jesus is Lord. And some might consider it in terms of power or authority. And what does it mean that Jesus is a Christ? Well, for a lot of people, Christ is Jesus' last name, Not a few, even within scholarship, have suggested that it's just really a description of Jesus that's been made so common that it's been made devoid of any meaning. We can protest that in the first century it was not devoid of meaning, but we have to grant that in the 21st century, yeah, Christ is basically Jesus' last name, the way most people use the term. And Christians have a tendency to take all these terms that circulate around God and Jesus and act as if they're all the same thing, that God is Jesus, is Lord is Christ, and they all mean the same thing. So it's good to take a moment and to forget all that we think that we know about what it means in Jesus, Lord and Christ, and to approach the matter with fresh eyes. What do Lord and Christ mean? To what do they refer? What would have come to the mind of a first century Palestinian Jewish person when they heard Lord and or Christ? How do the apostles and their associates speak of Jesus as Lord and Christ? And what are the implications that Jesus is Lord and Christ? How does it relate to the claim that those make who have earthly power? And what should it mean for us as Christians that Jesus is Lord and Christ? And what would it mean for those who do not put their trust in Jesus? And we begin with this word Lord although the dictionary definition for its euphemistic usage as an expression used to express surprise, worry, or emphasis is probably the most often used way that Lord is is made out in English. In English, Lord refers to a person or thing who has power or authority, a master or a ruler. In Greek, it's the word kurios, he who has power. In the New Testament, there's two primary uses of kurios it's most often used to specifically refer to jesus in contrast to the father so for instance in 1 corinthians 8 and verse 6 yet for us there is one god the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord jesus christ through whom we all through whom are all things excuse me and through whom we exist uh, Note, you'll always hear that god the father and the lord jesus christ and god father lord jesus those kind of parallel each other frequently and so most often when we see lord we're supposed to understand that it is jesus but it is also used according to the standard practice of the Septuagint, the greek translation of the old testament to be the quote-unquote translation of the tetragrammaton uh, yodhe vavhe y-h-w-h uh yahweh which is used in Old Testament citations or allusions. So, for instance, in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven, and 44, about uh, commandments regarding God, that the original said Yahweh, uh, but they didn't want to say the divine name, so they put in Kurios, or Lord. Yes, the willingness of early Christians to use Kurios specifically for Jesus in light of how it's associated with Yahweh does suggest that, yeah, they believe that Jesus is God and therefore, how are you going to put it, part of Yahweh. Unfortunately, however, the use of kurios in these citations has met, led many to conflate all uses of kurios as if they could equally refer to the Father or Jesus. When we look at all the New Testament evidence, it's just, that's just an unsustainable conclusion. Uh, if or when kurios is used as a citation, allusion, or under the influence of the Septuagint readings, is referred to Yahweh. And when it refers to Yahweh, it refers to the Father indeed, but also the Son and the Spirit. But when used on its own, it refers to Jesus specifically. And so, Lord refers to one who has power. And we can understand why it was used to refer to God as ultimate authority who has power. Since Romans 13, 1, he has all authority. And in Matthew 28, 18, we're told that Jesus is given all authority in heaven and on earth by the Father. And he's declared the Son of God. So, yes, yeah, Son of God is an important title. Uh, and Son of God really comes to us from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Um, in Psalm 2:10 that today I have begotten the you know you are my son in Psalm 110 sit my the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool and this is understood by Paul in Romans 1 that Jesus was declared the son of God with power in the resurrection that this is all circulating about what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection so in Israelite of the 1st century when you he would hear curios would think first of God as the one with ultimate authority he might also think of the promised Davidic king who would be given messianic rule, and he would also be aware of Caesar's claim to be Curios or Lord. Gentiles might think of divine power when hearing Curios, but would generally associate it with Caesar. And to this end, to call Jesus Curios was indeed a political statement by early Christians. Because if Jesus were truly Curios, that means Caesar was at best a lesser lord or curios and the subversiveness of this claim was used in the indictment of jesus before pilate luke 23 and verse 2 and in john 19 and verse 12 and it would also be the cause of persecutions of christians in Acts 17 and verse 7 in thessalonica that was a charge brought against the christians that they were saying there was another king jesus and so to use the term lord it involves a specific claim to power. That if we consider Jesus not only the Lord, but the Lord of Lords, is to say that we have confidence that Jesus has power above all powers. We see this in First Timothy 615, Revelation 17, 14, and 1916. That Jesus has all power. And therefore we're going to see later what it means to what that means for us. But first we look at the other concept. So he's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is not a last name, and it's not a nickname. It's a title with deep biblical roots. Christ is transliterated from the Greek Christos, which means anointed one. In the Hebrew, that Christos is translating is Moshiach, which is often rendered in transliteration Messiah. And two types of people were anointed in the Old Testament, priests and kings. So in Leviticus 8, we have the story of how Aaron and his sons were anointed as high priests of Israel. In 1 Samuel 16, we have the story of how Samuel anoints David to become king over Israel. In Zechariah 4, uh, Zechariah will have two anointed ones uh, who seem to be referring referring to the governor and the high priest. And so Israel would look forward to the king uh, whom the prophets promised, the one who would rule on the throne of David in Isaiah 9. 11, Micah 5, 2, many other passages. But there were some in Israel who were looking for two messiahs. Uh, we see in the Damascus document uh, that there is an expectation of a messiah king and a messiah priest. Now, early Christians insisted this Christ was Jesus of Nazareth, as Peter did in Acts 2 and verse 36. Now both Psalms two and one hundred ten were understood to be messianic in their promises in the first century. And Jesus himself combines elements of Psalm one ten, along with the Son of Man imagery from Daniel seven, when he responds to Caiaphas in Matthew twenty six sixty four, when he says they're going to see the the one like a son of man coming with in power uh, at the right hand of the throne of God and he makes direct appeal to the substance of psalm 110 1, that the lord said to my lord sit in my right hand so i make your enemies your footstool when he's arguing with his enemies in matthew 22 says "How uh, is the messiah the son of david if david calls him lord in psalm 110 1. and of course they couldn't answer him now peter and paul will also both make recourse to psalm 2 to prove that jesus is the christ in acts 2 and in acts 13. It's the Hebrews author, though, who really grabs a hold of that dual messianic tradition, the Second Temple Judaism in Zechariah 4, and bring them together in Jesus, who is the son of David, yes. But as he will show in Hebrews 7 through 9, high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is also promised in Psalm 110, that he would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, because he's offered himself uh, for sin. And so Jesus absolutely has the anointing as the son of David, the king, but he also has the anointing to be the priest-king in the order of Melchizedek, to be able to save all who come to him. So we can see the Christos may not mean a whole lot to Gentiles, unless they had some familiarity with Jewish religion. But every first-century Jewish person knew exactly what it meant to be Christos, or Moshiach. It's that promised king who would redeem Israel and overcome the enemies of the people of God, as we can see very vividly proclaimed in Luke chapter 1, or the priest who would come and finally atone for Israel, as Jesus also would do and also not just cleanse israel but to cleanse the temple and jesus in his life death resurrection ascension shed his own blood for sin that would atone for his people he stood himself as a temple of god being god in the flesh and who would continue to make a temple out of his body the people of god in the church who would come to him for redemption therefore he is the high priest in the Earl of melchizedek we see this in john 2 19 through 22 in ephesians 2 and colossians 2 and verse 15. But Jesus also died and was raised to overcome the forces of Satan, the powers and principalities, was given all authority and an eternal dominion as the Son of Man when he ascended, and he inaugurated the fresh reign of God in the kingdom of which he spoke continually in his life. As referenced in Daniel 7, Revelation 1, Matthew 4, 17, 23, and Colossians 2 and verse 15. And so in this way, Jesus is king of kings, having a rule that transcends all earthly rule, bringing into one the king and the priest, the victor and the lamb. Timothy six fifteen, Revelation seventeen fourteen and nineteen six. So today we've conflated all these terms, but Israelites would have known better. They knew exactly what Peter meant when he said in Acts two hundred thirty six that God has made both Lord and Christ, Christ Christos, this Jesus whom you crucified. As Lord, Jesus has all power. Any other claims of authority or power or lordship fall short of his. He is a son of God, which shows not just his proximity to Father, but the prerogative he has to reign in his kingdom, and he should be confessed as the son of God. As Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, the Son of Man and Son of David, ruling over an eternal dominion that was given him by his Father. He is high priest in the order of Melchizedek, able to save to the uttermost through his own blood those who come to him in faith. So yeah, Lord and Christ are synonymous in a lot of ways, but they have different origins and they represent different aspects of who Jesus is in their own right. And his lordship continues. His dominion is eternal, and death has yet to be fully defeated, as is expected on the day of resurrection, and when you know, everything comes to pass in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. And since that day is yet to come, Jesus continues to reign as the Lord, fully human, fully God, today as much as when he began to do so uh, almost 2,000 years ago. Amen. Jesus is our Lord and Christ. Okay, so we understand what a Lord is, who the Christ was to be, how they relate to Jesus, but what does it mean for us that Jesus is Lord and Christ? Well, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not as much a Lord as he thinks he is. And Jesus hints at this contrast between the divine prerogative and Caesar's prerogative when the Pharisees come and ask him about the uh, who they should pay taxes to. Well, show me the coin. Whose coin whose likeness and inscriptions? It's Caesar's. We'll render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Now on that denarius that, that Jesus is holding, Caesar is calling himself Curios. And so he says, Give it back to him, but give what is God's to God's, which ultimately is everything, because everything is made by God. Uh, and is God's and for God's glory now the tyrant and the government fear true faithful Christianity for faithful Christians cannot be coerced in proving anything that the state designs to do just because the state decides to do it as Jesus says in Matthew 10:28, indeed do not fear him who can kill the body fear him who can kill the body and, and put the soul in hell the power of the tyrant is a threat of death we overcome the fear of death as Christians through the hope of the resurrection in Jesus. And in that way, the force of the tyrant is blunted. All the tyrant can do is to attempt to get the Christian to compromise their faith toward the desires of the state. And sadly, for at least the past 1700 years, he's proven very successful in that. Uh, And we need to resist that, firm in our faith, and understand that if we need to resist that firm in the faith, it may cost us our lives. But what is that if we get it back in the resurrection? Jesus reigns over all, and he's going to call all these rulers and everybody into account that final day when we all stand before his judgment seat in Romans fourteen ten through 12. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised if the nation state looks at Christians with skepticism and suspicion, questioning our loyalty. If they don't have any reason to question our loyalty, have we compromised our faith? And if Jesus is Lord, then family, or custom, or culture, or anything in the creation, and or I, am not Lord. When the Israelites heard Peter's preaching about Jesus Lord as Christ, they had a powerful first impulse. In Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart and said, What shall we do? And they said that because they understood something. That if Jesus is Lord in Christ, it's for their part to submit to his reign. That's the idea behind Colossians 2, 1-11. That Jesus is a treasury of all wisdom and knowledge. He's the Godhead in bodily form. He's got all authority. And that's why we need to be rooted and grounded in Christ. Unfortunately, Jesus has every right to ask most who profess Him as Lord the same question He asks in Luke 6, uh, around verse 47-49. Why do you call me Lord and yet not do what I say? So many claim that Jesus is Lord, but they seem to reduce it to this mental proposition, right? Well, they accept that Jesus is Lord, but their lives don't bear the marks of people who submit to the Lord's authority. Their lives instead testify that they have been shaped and molded by their culture, their society, their family, their education, their own opinions. We can't imagine that we can call Jesus Lord and then go on and do our own thing based on what seems right to us. Jesus sees right through that, and at that point, Jesus ain't Lord. We're saying we are Lord, and Jesus is going to have to get over it. And that's not at all the testimony of the scriptures. Now, we're not talking about the things that we all can agree about when it comes to Jesus. If we agree with Jesus, what is that? It doesn't take very much out of us, right? No, this is about the things that are hard, which are counterintuitive to us for whatever reason. That will really see if we really trust Jesus as Lord, or whether we've made a God out of ourselves, our culture, our society, what we've been taught, or so on and so forth. We get a great model of what this looks like in John chapter 6. The majority of the people wanted the bread that Jesus fed them. The physical bread. When Jesus started talking about eating his body and drinking his blood, they wanted nothing about it and they didn't really want to understand it, and so they left. They walked away in the first, first 59 verses. In fact, in verses 60 through 66, we find out that even some who had been his disciples no longer could walk with him because this statement was too hard. They were willing to go with Jesus where they could agree, where they could see it, but he's now crossed the line. It's out of their range of view of what they can deem intolerable, and therefore they, they no longer follow him. He's become the stumbling block for them. But at least they're honest enough that they're walking away. They're not trying to pretend. And then we get to the twelve. And it's not that the twelve are enthused with this teaching. They have to eat his body and drink his blood. But you get Peter's resignation, almost. When he says in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? verse 68 you have the words of eternal life we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of god so that attitude of peter is exactly what is expected of the christian not that we're always excited about what jesus has to say but if jesus is lord in christ where else are we going to go we have to trust him and that's why it all comes down to faith that we're trusting in Jesus as Lord, that God has done power and great things through him, and through those things we can find our own transformation and hope. In Romans 3, 20, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That is why, even though, unfortunately, people have bastardized the idea of what it means to, to have faith, having faith remains the primary posture that we're supposed to take once we have learned of what God has done in Jesus, that we put our trust in him. That's why Peter, Paul says in Acts 16.31 to the Philippians, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your whole household, and you'll be saved. Again, this is not just saying, yes, I believe mentally. I accept the preposition that Jesus is Lord, and then go and do what I want faith without works is dead in James 2 14 through 26 that we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments and that we walk as he walked in 1st John 2 3 through 6 therefore we need to constantly subject ourselves to him and his authority our thoughts our feelings and our actions just like the rest of the human body subjects itself and submits to the direction of its head powerful imagery there in Ephesians 5 22 through 33 but our subjection to jesus shouldn't be burdensome because his yoke is gentle his burden is light he can strengthen and sustain us through anything that we endure he has given us one another for edification and encouragement and he has modeled the way forward for us in his own life in matthew 11 20 through 30 hebrews 4 15 5, 7 and 8 now sure some aspects of obedience will come rather naturally the challenge is where it becomes difficult, where we are liable to rationalize or justify our disobedience or lack of alignment with our, what God's accomplished in Jesus, where we assume God's grace will just cover us because we are weak and sinful. In a very real way, the growth and maturity in the faith takes place as we subject more and more of our thoughts, feelings, and actions to Jesus in ways that we only understand as we grow, that is, taking every thought captive in Jesus in 2 Corinthians ten three through 6 now, throughout the New Testament, there's an expectation of judgment, that in the end, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, in Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. A lot of people today act like the Lordship of Jesus is just one option among many, but Jesus himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, That no one comes to the Father except by me, in John 14, 6-9. And... If that's true, then it's absolutely true, and, and there's no way around it. That those who do not submit in this life to Jesus will be compelled to an agony, perhaps even tears on the day of judgment, according to Second Thessalonians one, six through nine. In Romans eight, seventeen through twenty five, and Colossians one nineteen through twenty three, it's made evident that Jesus is the redemption of the world. Therefore, whatever is not in alignment with what God is doing in Jesus cannot be redeemed. And if it's not redeemed, it's going to be cast out on the final day. Uh, we might want to escape why all of these things are consistent and not not just testified to by the witness of scripture but by logic and and reason that this is the way it has to be even though it is going to be something we do not want to see for so many people and so if jesus is lord in christ we're not all of us are going to come under his judgment according to what he's established and that's why we need to submit to the lord and his purposes now And encourage everyone else to submit to the Lord and his purposes now so that no one needs to be compelled to do so in much more dire conditions later. And so, yes, Jesus is Lord and Christ. These are significant terms expressing the power and authority Jesus has been given because of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He has all power. He reigns as king. And because he has all power and he reigns as king, we should submit to him and his ways not trust our own ways or the ways of our forefathers or culture. And we understand that he's going to return one day and everyone will be subjected to judgment by his word. And so let's today confess that Jesus is Lord in Christ and make good on that confession through repentance and thought, word, and deed and have reason to praise God and thank him for the return of Jesus on that glorious day. We're so thankful that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged by this. If you have been, we encourage you to share it with friends and family and other social media and other places if you have any questions or comments about anything that we've talked about like talking about anything further you have a prayer request you might just want to check out more about us please find us online at org. we're also on social media if i can be of any service please reach out to me through my website to dot com. that's www.d-e-v-e-r-b-o-v-i-t-a-e.com i again thank you have a great day